So Daniel 11, 32. And we've been, we've been teaching this passage, Daniel eleven thirty two 32b. And it says, But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. I love this. Um, the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. So what I want to talk about today is how we stand firm. And I want to talk about it in Daniel's context, because I realize it's August, and we've been teaching on Daniel 11.32 all year, and we haven't talked about Daniel. So I want to talk about Daniel, because this is an amazing story about what it looks like to stand firm. And he stands firm with his friends, his friends stand firm, and then he stands firm alone. And how many of you remember the three stories in Daniel from when you were kids? Uh, or maybe at least one of them you get, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was the great one for the tucking in at night. My dad used to say, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, which is a great way to remember them. Uh, if you didn't know that, now you do. You'll remember forever. And we know that there's Daniel and the lion's den... And Daniel stands at a time when King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He sounded like an awful king. He was really ticked that nobody could tell him what his dream meant. And so he said, if nobody can tell me what this dream means in the next 24 hours, I'm killing all of you, wise people. Like, he had the air quotes, wise people. You all will be slaughtered. And he said, cut to pieces. Can you imagine? We live in a great democracy today where we don't cut annoying people to pieces. And Daniel stood firm. And we started this year with saying we need to know God. We need, we need to know who he is. So March through April, we explored ways of knowing God, and we fasted. Remember that horrible time that we spent together fasting and um, studying the scriptures and saying, who is this God? And then we think about standing firm, and sometimes when we think about standing firm, we think about like, all right, I'm going to muster up all of my strength, and I'm going to stand. You know, standing is one of the first things you learn to do as a soldier, you stand in formation for hours and hours on end, and it's a great kind of practice because you wouldn't think that standing was really all that hard unless maybe you've been a bridesmaid at a charismatic wedding. And then you would know because you stand for a really long time while they sing and do a full sermon and then pray and have prophetic words. But standing is actually a really hard feat, and soldiers are trained in standing. But you know what? You don't give soldiers awards based on how awesome they are in training. You know, no soldier has ever gotten a Medal of Honor for being really good at low crawling, because I would have like three Medals of Honor. I was really good at standing, I was really good at low crawling, and I can fake push-ups like you wouldn't believe. But you don't get medals for that. You get medals when you've trained, you've gone to battle, and you've been tested, and you've stood, and you've been proven courageous. And this takes on lots of different shapes and forms in our life. We face a lot of different things where we have to choose what is our reality. What is your reality going to be? And so sometimes you stand and the world comes at you and you move into a situation. Like we moved back to St. Charles from Florida where my family thought it was the best climate and culture in the world. They were mistaken. But you move back and the first winter comes and it's cold, and it's miserable, and you have to choose your reality. Are we going to be miserable today because it's cold outside, or are we going to stand in the reality of heaven that there's a greater purpose today despite what I feel, that my bones are aching because of the cold? And so when we think about this standing firm, in the Hebrew, um, we see that this word is shazak, and um, we've actually had teaching on shazaking. It's been, gosh, a few years, a lot of, yeah. So um, David actually shazacked himself 
He built himself up. And the way that we build ourselves up is in refreshing our knowledge of who God is. When you get into battle and bullets start flying and it becomes chaotic, the way you stand firm is reminding yourself of your reality, of who God is, of how you've tested and tried him and he's always proven faithful and loving and kind and forgiving and constant. And then you stand because it doesn't matter what the world brings at you. But you gotta know him first. You gotta train. You gotta be disciplined. You gotta pray and worship and praise him and fast and pursue him. And when we do that, it's not about knowing who I am. It doesn't matter who I am. Circumstances around me may change how I identify myself. What I need to know is who God is. And then I can stand. So we think about our circumstances, and our circumstances a lot of times shape who we know ourselves to be and who we think God's called us to be, but who God is and his plans for us have actually never, ever changed. And I love the story of Daniel because it shows this so clearly, and they repetitiously do the same thing in knowing God and standing firm and doing great exploits. And the funny thing about their great exploits, most of them really didn't have that much to do with them. Right? The guys walking out of the furnace, it wasn't like they put on fireproof clothing. The son of Adam showed up in that fire, walked out with them. Those are the great exploits that I want to do. So I got tested this summer, and it was really fun to be tested, right? We all say that. Testing is really exciting and fun. Um, and Riley and I went to, uh, we were in Indonesia, we were in uh, Sugi Island. You've all heard of Sugi Island because we all study Indonesia a lot. So just, just for the record, Indonesia, in case you didn't study it in school and you don't remember, is the fourth most populous nation in the world. So it starts, India and China are over one point something billion, the US is 350 million, and Indonesia is the fourth nation behind the US at 250 million. Indonesian has the largest concentration of Muslim people in any national population. It's a really fun a place to be. And we, we arrived in Singapore, and if you know anything about Singapore, Singapore is like the future city of the world. It's clean, it's beautiful, they have um, gorgeous sculptures and amazing things, and the airport has like a 12-story waterfall, and you feel like, you know, this is going to be amazing. And then we go from Singapore to Batam. So you see Batam on that uh, little... Um, island just below Singapore, and we, we go from Singapore to Batam on a, uh, a world-class ferry. And as we go, clouds roll in over Singapore. They don't hit us on the boat, but we watch this, like, you know, uh, torrential rain kind of flood the city of Singapore as we float out to sea in sunshine. It was a great moment. We get to Batam, and as we get to Batam, the clouds kind of roll into Batam, and it's pouring in Batam, and it was rain that I had, I had never seen it rain like that, and we lived in Florida, so that is saying a lot, in tropics rain, where I took a picture of it, I don't have the picture, but you could actually see the water in the picture. So those of you who try to take pictures of waterfalls and you can't quite see the water, you know how amazing that is for a rainstorm where you can see um, the picture, and we're all there with all of our luggage, and um, we have to walk through Batam to the other ferry port, 
which you know it's going to get exciting when they call it the other ferry port. So we walked through um, a seedy market, and it's dirty, and it's like, okay, <laughs> this is going to be great. And we get there, and our next ferry is about a 20-foot boat made of wood with a motorboat engine on it. And that's, that's our next ferry. And we're going to go from Batam through all of these islands down to the island of Sugi. So let's go to the next picture so you can get a feel for where we are in Indonesia. So see that little red dot? And then we have the whole nation of Indonesia. And if you put it all together, it's about the size of Texas, um, that whole nation. And we're in this little tiny island called the island of Sugi in northwestern Indonesia. And Indonesia has 17,000 islands. This is basically a lesson in Indonesia. You didn't know that's what you were getting today. That's okay. You didn't know anything about it, and you should, because God loves a lot of people there. So um, Indonesia is 17,000 islands. They count 22,000 islands at low tide, because some of them appear when the tide goes down. Um, but it's 17,000 inhabited islands. And because the islands are so spread out, they don't have a national um, electricity grid. So the island we go to doesn't have electricity, and you can imagine if they don't have electricity, they don't have plumbing. If they don't have plumbing, they do also don't have like waste disposal and some of the other things that we just take for granted in everyday life. It's pretty amazing when you live in places that are so different to our lived lives. Riley loved it. She said she could move to Sugi. She had no problem with it whatsoever. Um, it was great. But we get there, and you know, you're on generators and all of this, and it's, it's a very exciting place to be. As you take a long boat through the islands of Indonesia, these tiny little islands with maybe 2,000, maybe 200 people living on them. And I took pictures from the, the little rowboat whenever they had the things um, up so you could see out. And every island that we passed had a mosque. You just saw mosque after mosque after mosque after mosque. And there's no electricity and there's no running water. <laughs> there's no waste collection, but there's a mosque. And so it's an interesting place. And Riley and I stayed um, in, at a, a, a really um, beautiful place um, called Tolunas Beach. Um, a lot of the houses are built out over the water. Um, for villagers, that's great because you don't need plumbing. Your bathroom is a hole that dumps into the ocean. Um, for us, it was actually a lot nicer than that inside. Um, we did have plumbing where we were staying. It was a resort. Um, and we got there, and it was really beautiful. We had our own private beach. Um, you can't tell in the pictures, but the sun shined, um, except for the one hour of rain we had every day. And it was paradise, and it was beautiful. We were on this beach with the rainforest behind us. We went to bed at night and laid in our, um, our little chalet, really suffering for the gospel, with the sound of the waves beneath our chalet. And it was, it was really beautiful. And it was a great reality. And I was really happy to be serving God there, <laughs> teaching business classes to Wheaton students, and then, um, which was like one hour of the day, and then laying on the beach the rest of the time and um, thinking through what my next lesson would be. And with anything that God calls us to do, we have a honeymoon season where we're just so overwhelmed. God loves me. God's called me. This is so amazing. I'm so glad I'm here. Isn't this great? And then we realize that there's a reality around us. And there's, there's a whole lot of things around us that are going to be broken. And there's going to be a lot of challenges. And that whole knowing God and standing firm is coming. <laughs> so there's no um, tropical paradise for you in this broken world, because the kingdom has come, and we have all the power of heaven, but the kingdom is not yet. And so we are going to be tested, even if it feels like paradise today. There will be a challenge tomorrow, and you can bet on that. And so we go back to our chalet one night, 
And we had, uh, you know, as very cavalier Westerners on a, a tropical island in Indonesia, had decided we didn't need to shut our doors during the day. We wanted that breeze to flow through our chalet so that we could just enjoy it. And when we come back at night, it'd be nice and cool. We had all these fans going. It was amazing. So we came back one night, and I should have known it was the beginning of the end of our tropical paradise moments. So we come in, and we're, we're getting ready, and um, there's this shadow that goes across the, hall, the wall. And Riley starts screaming. And it, Sorry, Riley, we're just going to expose our journey together, okay? So Riley's screaming, and I'm like, you have to be quiet. You know, the walls are, the floors have, like, gaps in them. You can see the ocean, and the walls aren't quite um, pitched together. So you know that everybody in all the chalets around us can hear us. And, of course, like, a minute later, there's a knock on the door, and it's one of my faculty colleagues, like, are you guys okay? Do you need help? And it, it turned out to be a bug, right? A real big tropical flying beast of an animal that was probably about this big. <laughs> but when it flies across a light bulb, it makes this great shadow of a creature on the wall. And I was like, no, no, it's fine. I'm, I'm strong. I was in the army. I've got a business PhD. I can kill a freaking little bug. Thank you so much. We don't need a knight in shining armor tonight. Okay? Famous last words. So I tell Riley, I said, you need to go get ready. It was nothing. It was just a bug. Get over it. We're tough. We're Stoll's women, you know. Um, and she goes over to get ready for bed, and she puts her hand down to pick something up on the floor that she thinks is like a scrunchie or a dirty sock. And as she goes to squeeze it and lift it up, she realizes that it is, in fact, <laughs> a little bat. And this wouldn't be that big of a deal, really, if you just like went into your room and there was a little bat laying there. It was dead. It had gotten caught in the fan and died. Um, but as we had sat in the main, um, the main hut out on the water that night playing games, Riley had said, hey, Mom, look at all those birds diving into the ocean. And they were flying out of the thatch over the, the main rec room, right? Because they were all thatch roofs. And, uh, and one of the Indonesian guys says, oh, no, no, those aren't birds. Those are, those are the, the bats that keep the mosquitoes down, and they, they live in the thatch roofs of the chalets. So we, we decide that um, we don't want rabies. So we're going to have somebody else dispose of our, our nighttime guest. So we go down and we get somebody. We find one of the Indonesian guys who's like, oh, but bats in Indonesia are no big deal. I hold them in my hand all the time. And we're like, you're nuts. You need more education. Um, no, we're just kidding. <laughs> um, but they come in. We throw it into the ocean. And we, we go to bed, and, and this night, and for the rest of the nights, Riley doesn't sleep in her separate room in the chalet. She is there close beside me. <laughs> and we turn off the lights, and I'm like, it's okay, babe. This is fine. It's part of the exciting adventure. And we turn the lights off, and we lay there, and all night long, all we hear is the chirping of the bats in the thatch. Which doesn't, I mean, that sounds bad enough, right? But these aren't the worst bats on Sugi Island. Um, Sugi Island is the home of the famous Indonesian fox bat. So we think, oh, it's not a big deal, but the fox bat actually grows to four feet in height, is about the size of a fox, and has a six-foot wingspan at full maturity. What a great place to be called to. What a wonderful nation to get to go and stay and serve. And so we laid there and we think about the fact that all of the, the flapping wings that we hear could be a little fruit bat or they could be a fox bat. 
So we closed the doors, we shut all the windows, we curled up in bed together, and we chose the reality of our circumstances. And we can be in paradise. And we can have moments where we have to choose the reality of our circumstances. Do we pack it up and go somewhere that has electricity? Jakarta does have electricity, so where we're living in Jakarta um, does have that. But God calls us sometimes to places we never imagined going. And he puts us in places with different challenges. And ours was just a simple little challenge and a fun story about bats coming into our gorgeous first world chalet with plumbing and electricity and running water on an island that everybody else didn't have this on. But the reality is there's a lot of people who are in places that they didn't ask to go to and they're being faced with challenges and they have to choose their reality and we all have to choose our realities. We all have challenges in front of us that are kingdom not yet. And we have to fight through and believe in our kingdom come. And so I love the story of Daniel for this because we all said we had some familiarity with Daniel. But let's look at the timeline of Daniel's life. So Daniel is born in Jerusalem. And that's before this timeline starts. I'm glad it's kind of fuzzy. It'll make it harder for you all to read while I'm talking. <laughs> Daniel's born in Jerusalem, in Judah. Israel in the north has already fallen to Assyria. Assyria was the first great nation the first great empire that came up against Israel. And so Daniel is a kid. Um, he had to have been royal because that's what the Daniel 1 says. He was uh, probably a noble, um, educated, handsome, good-looking guy. And when he was probably 14 or 15, Jerusalem falls. Judah is overthrown. And not only does Nebuchadnezzar overthrow Jerusalem and Judah, but he also robs or takes all of the jewels, all of the treasures from the temple and eventually destroys the temple itself. And so the people of Israel have to decide who is our God. The temple is gone. They're no longer in Jerusalem. In this time, the people of Israel were scattered all over the world. I guess Jeremiah got lucky. I don't know. He went off with a group to Egypt. But Daniel was of the group that got taken to Babylon as a slave for Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel and some of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Tabedjigo, I mean Abednego, um, were really smart, bright guys, and they were chosen to be trained by King Nebuchadnezzar. So they spent three years in training. And this was the first time that Daniel chose who his God was. Because there he is in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. And slaves that were taken into um, other empires back then, a lot of times they were castrated. They would have been eunuchs because they didn't want nobility coming into their kingdoms and marrying and passing down their noble bloodlines. So who knows what Daniel and his three friends went through? Pretty horrific stuff. And there they are, and they are being shared. Uh, the, the teacher or guy who's, who's training them says, you can have all the riches of the king's table. And I think most of us... You're like 15 or 16, and you've been like ripped away from your family. You're in a foreign land, and you're being offered the riches of the king's table in that land. And Daniel says, no, we're not going to do that. Because he knows who his God is. And he says, I'm going to stand firm. I'm not going to eat the riches of Nebuchadnezzar's table. We're going to have like water and vegetables. How many of you did the Daniel fast? What did he eat? He ate like really boring, awful things for three weeks. 
And, and in the end, he was shazacked by that. Because what happened? At the end of those three weeks, he was stronger, he was better looking, he was more um, fit and ready for whatever the king had than any of the other people that had eaten the finest things from the king's table. Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach, they stood firm and they were strengthened and made stronger because of it. So then we move into the first six chapters of Daniel, tell the narrative story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's times in Nebuchadnezzar's courts and then in Darius's courts. Because it's not enough to grow up and be born in Jerusalem and then get overthrown by Babylon and taken to Babylon to live. But then Babylon gets overthrown as well by the Persian Empire. And now they're all serving yet another king. And another pretty wicked king by a lot of accounts as well. Um, and his Darius's uh, journey wasn't as crazy as Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar did go like crazy for seven years. Uh, Jamin and I were talking about the other day and he's like, how do they keep his throne? I mean, how do you have a king that goes away for seven years like a crazy person and then they come back and they get to be king again? But it happened for Nebuchadnezzar. Before Nebuchadnezzar became crazy, um, we have, he builds this statue to himself and he tells everybody, you should bow down to the statue that looks just like me. I don't know where Daniel, Daniel was probably on holiday that week, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they know their God, and they know their God says, don't worship any other God but me. And so they refuse to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, and in this process get thrown into the fiery furnace, a story you all know, and in that fiery furnace, Jesus, the Son of Man, comes and stands among them, and they aren't burned, and Nebuchadnezzar repents for a little while, and then he goes crazy later. But this, have this whole experience, and it's all standing. It's strengthening themselves, finding courage in the face of realities that don't align with who God is and what God said about his people. And so in this, we have a lot of these moments with Nebuchadnezzar, you know, threatening to kill all of his wise men. Um, and Daniel says, let's go pray. He's going to give us the interpretation for the dream. God delivers. Daniel doesn't conjure up um, a great dream interpretation. God speaks. And then we go into this next phase of Daniel's life. And Darius um, conquers Babylon. They're now in the Persian Empire. And in this season, for those of you that are like Bible history buffs, you know um, Darius was king over Babylon. Cyrus was king over Persia. And at this point in time, Cyrus releases the Jews to go back to Jerusalem if they want to rebuild. So Daniel knows this, and he actually comes across the writing of Jeremiah. And it says that he's reading the scriptures, and he's praying, and he's fasting, and some of his friends are leaving to go back to Jerusalem, and here he is sitting in Babylon. And he spends the next seven chapters of the book, because that's how that works, right? <laughs> the next seven chapters, having visions and apocalyptic dreams from God. And I'm not going to go into in great, great detail those apocalyptic dreams. They have whole books written about their potential um, possible interpretations. Um, but he has all of these dreams about the things that God is going to do. And he talks about other kings that are going to come, other empires that are going to overthrow, um, you know, Babylon and Persia, other empires that are coming. So if we think this is what Babylon looked like, um, I really love maps. I'm a logistician. It's okay. We'll look at maps. It gives us context. So this is Babylon. So you can see Jerusalem all the way over on the left in the bottom left circle and then Babylon. Um, the next kingdom is Persia. 
And you see that Persia um, is even bigger than the Babylonian Empire, and it reaches all the way to Egypt, um, reaching almost all the way over to the Chinese border. Alexander the Great rises up against King Xerxes. Remember Xerxes from the Book of Esther? right? Some Xerxes the something. And um, Xerxes is a hot-headed warrior, and he ends up getting overthrown by Alexander the Great, and we get to Macedonia. Macedonia comes. Macedonia is overthrown by Greece, and this is how um, the Bible and the New Testament all came to be written in Greek, that Greece was kind of the seat of the intellectual world at that time, and so all of the teaching in schools taught in Greece, uh, in Greek. And then I included the last one, the Roman one, even though we're not going to go into it today, just because this is probably one of the few prophetic words in the Bible that actually includes England. And so I think we should all just stop to note that England was part of the Greek or the Roman Empire, and so this does have meaning for all English people in the room. Um, we only have a few here today, but they should note that they were part of, you know, the overthrow of the empires that Daniel saw in his dreams. Noted? Okay, great. All right, so all the way, all the way to England. And so when we think about this time, these are different times, Right? that Daniel has this apocalyptic dream in chapter 11 where he talks about the kings to come. And he talks about there's going to be a king from the south and a king from the north. And he's, you know, probably talking through the Macedonian Empire and the Greek Empire and then the Roman Empire that's to come. And when he talked about for the people of God in this passage, and your homework is to go read the whole 12 chapters of Daniel. It's a short book. Um, it's only like 10 pages in my Bible. You should be able to get through it this week. Um, and... In, in chapter 11, he talks about these, these kings that are coming, and they're going to offer you the riches of their tables, and they're going to woo you and try to bring you into their cultures, and they're going to offer you a reality that seems better than the kingdom come reality that we now have as well as the people of God who are in relationship with God. And he says, he's going to win a lot of people away, and even the wise will stumble and fall. And he's going to be, uh, like, honey-tongued. They say all kinds of weird things like that in the Old Testament. And he's going to have, his lips are going to be full of flattery, and he's going to say all these things, and people will fall away. But we get back to Daniel eleven thirty-two. But the people who know their God will stand firm and do great exploits. This is the context that he says these words in saying that we're going to fall. We're going to be slaves in nations that are going to fall. We're going to be foreigners and exiles and outsiders of this culture that we are in. And it's going to change around us over and over and over again. But if we know not who we are, we're, we're going to stumble. <laughs> it says that. We, we might fall. We don't, we're not going to get it. We're going to sin, and this is going to be the cost of our sin. But the men who know God, they're going to stand firm. They're going to do great exploits. And so when we look at how Daniel did this in the book of Daniel, the way they knew God, it's the lion's den. It's that when the culture around him said, you can only pray to King Darius, he says, no, 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 I know, I know God. You're not God. I'm going to pray to the God I know. And so he starts off on his knees fasting and praying. And he gets caught, and it costs him. But then, when he's in the lion's den, he stands. He stands firm. And God says an angel and shuts the lion's mouths. 
And where we are at today, it might not feel as extreme as Daniel's times. It's sneakier. It creeps in without us noticing that we're over here sometimes, and we get home from work, and we need to be strengthened. What do we do? Do we sit on the couch and Netflix? Do we go out to eat with our families? Do we find some recreational activity where we can just clear our minds of all thinking? Those are all good things to do if, if we're committed to knowing our God. And if we're committed to knowing our God, we'll have space for all the fun stuff. We're Westerners. But we'll, we need to first know our God before we rely on the, 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 the tools of our culture to center ourselves again. Is our rest in prayer? Is our rest in fasting? As horrible as that sounds, is our rest in diving in and holding on, not to who we want to be, but to a God who makes us who we need to be. And if we do that, culture won't win. Our reality won't be shaped by the circumstances around us. We won't go into a church or a congregation and say, this was amazing when we came, but then I saw brokenness and sin and disappointment, and now, now I'm not standing. Well, that's, that's not the reality of the kingdom of heaven. The reality of the kingdom of heaven says that I know a God that loves every single person around me in their brokenness and in this imperfect world. And Daniel says this is how we live in it. We set an example ourselves through prayer and fasting, not because we're so strong, but because we know a God who is, just like Joe shared today, we serve a God who is our strength. And then when the moment comes for our, our Medal of Honor moment, for the great exploits, we stand totally firm. Because it doesn't matter if I lose the battle. It doesn't matter if I don't have the right words. God stands firm with me. He is my strength. He is my joy. And this is how we do it. So we think about this. We are a people in a foreign land. In Daniel's time, this meant Jerusalem was gone and the temple was gone and he had to find the presence of God through prayer and fasting. Today, Jesus is gone. He's not gone, gone. You know what I mean. He's, he's risen and he's coming back, but we're in this space in between. Are we going to push into the presence of God? Are we going to create a reality of that kingdom come that he gave us when he was here? Are we going to take on the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who's there to empower us to give us all the tools of heaven so that we can actually usher in what Jesus said we should be praying for, our Father in heaven. Holy, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done now on earth as in heaven. This is what Jesus was teaching us to pray when we were on our knees so that when we stood, we would say, this is what our God's heart in heaven says because I know my holy, holy Father because I talked to him this morning. So they worshiped Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They worshiped God. They, they praised him. They prayed. Daniel has this great prayer that he prayed in Daniel 2. Um, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to the discerning, reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, God of my ancestors. You've given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you, and you've made known to us the dream of the king. This is a man choosing a supernatural reality 
in the face of a really hard one. It's through prayer, it's through fasting, it's through praise. And then, and then we can stand firm. Then we don't waver when challenges come. We literally grow in strength and in health. And we don't bow to reality. Because the natural reality we see around us isn't the supernatural reality at all. So I love this, because this, this didn't come up for the first time in Daniel. We see it throughout the entire Bible, starting um, as early as Moses and Joshua. And this is how they fought battles. Do you guys remember this? With Exodus, Moses fought battles by standing there. I mean, he had like the rod thing, and he like raised his rod, and he just stood there, and Israel won the battles. Joshua won battles by standing there. The, the rivers parted because they just stood there with the ark. Just stood and all of a sudden, the natural reality faded away, and a supernatural reality took over, and the people of God knew who their God was and what great and amazing things he could do through them. Daniel, uh, the whole book demonstrates this. It's got to be the thesis of Daniel that we have a sovereign God, that when we know him, we stand, and amazing things happen. Ephesians, Paul says, take up the whole armor of God and fight. No, he doesn't say that. He says, take up the whole armor of God and stand. Stand. Stand firm. And then finally, Peter um, encourages the people that he's writing to in the churches in Rome, and he says, stand firm in the grace of God, in your revelation of the gospel, not in who you are, but who God is. So as we close this morning, I want to ask you all to stand. And when we stand, it's really practical. It's really simple. We stand in three things. We stand in praise, we stand in prayer, and we stand in fasting. So I'm going to ask you all to fast for at least the next 10 minutes. I'm going to ask you all to praise <laughs> uh, with Travis here. And I actually, when we look at the story of Daniel, Daniel first prays with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pray with one another, and Daniel prays. And there's something to be said for standing shoulder to shoulder. I love this in the time of Nehemiah with the people that had left Daniel and had moved on. They stood all throughout the book of Nehemiah. It says, stand firm. And you know, they stood shoulder to shoulder. They stood together. And nobody could break their ranks. And we all have things in front of us. We all have realities, natural realities in front of us that are making it really challenging to reach out and say, I live in a supernatural world. Solomon said this so beautifully when he was here a few weeks back. What's your supernatural, what is the reality that you're going to see? How much of the kingdom of heaven are you going to stand in? But we need each other, and we need to stand in praise and prayer and fasting together. So as we close today, I want you to look to somebody around you. Maybe somebody you know, maybe somebody you don't know. And if anybody doesn't have somebody by you, one of the leaders will find you and will pray with you. But let's pray together. Let's pray against the golden idols of Nebuchadnezzar. Let's pray against the, the culture that says praying is stupid. <laughs> That's what they said in Darius' day. And let's pray that we, by standing together, capture a picture of something supernatural that is more real than the circumstances we stand in. And then together, let's stand. Let's stand together and stand firm. So I'm going to close in prayer, and then I do want you to find somebody and pray with them on the one thing that is coming against them, that we have an opportunity to seize heaven and stand together today. So Father God, I thank you. I thank you for your word that helps us to know you. I thank you that you love us so much that you continue to speak to us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who comes and guides us and gives us power and strength.
I thank you for the examples of the people who went before us, who knew you, who pursued you, and who stood. So Lord, we stand. We stand today choosing a reality that is yours, choosing a kingdom that is supernatural, putting all of our hope in the cross, putting all of our hope in you. And we declare together today that our reality will not be defined by culture or circumstances or the world around us, but we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus on the throne, and we're going to claim a reality that you have for us, and we are going to stand together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.